Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag for the first time ever. It is live. It is the same as always. I will answer your concerns, your queries, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments on tennis and other stuff. Uh, but yes, I want these to be live from now on. I, I like it. I like it that way. Uh, it's a good rush. I like the I like the rush um, and the ability to just react and respond to you guys on a live basis. But I still have gathered comments uh, beforehand, as I always will. I'll start the mailbag answering your comments in the community tab. It's good for the international audience, especially because I know some people, this is not a good time for some people. I might put out a survey at some point of, of what time these should be. Um, along with getting some other feedback from you guys about the channel. I'll probably do that very soon. Um, but yeah, for now, I'm going to start with YouTube community tab and Twitter questions. You can follow me on Twitter. I encourage you to at Gil underscore gross is the handle, but we're going to get into things. Love the comments um, on the YouTube community tab. Was reading through them and could not wait to get on the air because uh, they are fantastic. I'm really excited for them. I've set aside a little under 20. I don't know how many I'm going to get to, but I plan to go about an hour. And um, I, I like to also give everyone time to just settle in. Uh, if you're new to the channel, my name is Gil Gross. I believe this is home to the most uh, in-depth tennis analysis on the internet. Monday match analysis breaks down the final every Monday after the Sunday. And these mailbags are also weekly. Um, so let's get going here. Let me just make sure the stream's okay. Looks good. Let us begin. Um, would like to start with a Novak question, since that is the title of the video. Um, so let me try to look for one of those. Here we go. All right. We start with Mr. Ataguas. One, do you think Novak has the best chance of winning Wimbledon still despite having gone through such a huge emotional turmoil of winning French Open for the second time while beating Nadal on the way? So let's just start with that one. I'll get to the others afterwards. Uh, the channel double is not an easy thing to conquer, not an easy thing to accomplish. Uh, it is rare. I think um, it has been done on, with more regularity on the women's side, but I know for the men, Bjorn Borg was the master of it. He did it, I, I want to say, five times. Um, you know, Nadal did it in 2008. Federer did it when he won the French in, in 2009, but it's, it's very rare. I think it's very difficult. Obviously you have polar opposite surfaces and the distance of time that you get to adjust to those surfaces are, is very minimum, uh, very minimal. And this year it's, one week less than the players were getting previously because Roland Garros was postponed by one week, which means there's only two weeks between these tournaments. And that's how it used to be for the longest of times. But then they made a change that I believe was a really good one, extending the grass court season by one week. This year is kind of a reprieve from that. With that being said, I still think that Novak's worst surface is clay and his best surface is grass. And... I think he should be able to recover emotionally and, and physically. Um, on grass, I don't think anyone defends or moves close to as well as Novak does. I think his advantage there in that department with his balance and his flexibility 
it helps him do things on defensively on grass that I just don't see from anyone else. It's a massive advantage. It's a massive uh, skill that, that he has. The return of serve becomes such a, a premium on grass with the serves just coming at everyone a little bit quicker. And it's that much harder to deflect the pace and to get returns back in play with some quality. And obviously that is the the number one strength probably of Novak's game from a, a technical standpoint is the return of serve. And then you get to his own serve with a first serve. I got to dig into the numbers. I have not, but I, I want to say that this is maybe as potent as Djokovic's first serve has ever been in his career. And then his second serve um, is, it also should be more effective on the lower bouncing surface because then he can go to the slice second serve to the right the right-handed forehand, which he was utilizing in Australia. He was hitting it in the triple digits. Can't do it on clay. It's not effective on clay. The it the ball kind of bounces up a little bit too high, and the right-hander has too much time to just move over, and it's in the forehand, uh, so it, it doesn't it doesn't work on clay, but on the quicker and slicker and lower bouncing surfaces, I think Djokovic's second serve, which is one of the weaker parts of his game on clay, that gets remedied. There are so many advantages working in Novak's favor on grass compared to clay. He just won a slam on his worst surface. I really believe that that's true. And I, I also consider grass his best surface. So, yeah, I do think that uh, Djokovic has a really good chance at winning Wimbledon. He should be considered the favorite despite the evident challenges of just rebounding from the, the French Open run both mentally and physically. But motivation should be at an all-time high. It's not like when he won the French in 2016. So let me, let's cover this real quick. He, he wins the French Open in 2016, and he, it's the career Grand Slam. He has been on top of the tennis world to, to an extent that no one has ever really seen for a year and a half there. His 2015 and his first half of 2016, it's so incredibly dominant. He, he wins the French Open, which was the, the main priority in, in his career at the time, and suffers just a, a massive let-up. Loses to Sam Querrey at Wimbledon. Loses to Juan Martin Del Potro at the Olympics. And there's just this huge exhale for Novak. He struggles from from that point on until until Wimbledon 2018, really. Uh, but it's hard to see that happening here, as there's so much motivation for him on the horizon. The Olympics, one of the few holes in his resume that he's trying to plug up, is Olympic singles gold, something that Nadal has something that Andy Murray has two of. Federer won a doubles gold at least. So Djokovic, uh, Olympics high priority, and the slam race is is so close, it's so tight, and Novak looks to, to equal Federer and Nadal at Wimbledon with 20. So it doesn't feel like 2016. In 2016, it felt like, it, it felt like a big exhale, but right now it feels like Novak is still kind of on the charge with with a lot of really massive milestones that he's trying to accomplish. Second part of this, can can Nadal uh, win against Joker at Australian Open to kind of even the score? Hypothetically, what would Nadal need to improve to do so? Um, I don't want to get in too much depth with, in terms of technicalities and matchups, but coming into this, you know, I didn't feel that I felt that that Djokovic needed to change a lot against Nadal on clay, and and he found some of that 
some of that magic uh, tactics and potion and execution to do it. But uh, I, I still feel that for Nadal, it's a huge uphill battle. And Djokovic has always been, for a very long time now, a matchup issue on faster surfaces with both cross-court rallies uh, troubling Nadal and also Rafa just being a little bit at, at a lower level when it comes to the serve-return dynamic when you take those shots in isolation. So there's a lot for, for Nadal to kind of make up there. But more than anything, I think he would need to be at the peak of his powers from a serving perspective. And it's been a little bit, uh, it's been a while since we've seen that. It's probably been since the first half of 2019, since we've seen the best version of Nadal and, and his serving. Number three, while we're on this topic, what is a glaring weakness in Novak's game at the moment, if any at all? We saw how Novak exploited Nadal and Tsitsipas's weaknesses to beat them despite being a slight underdog in both matches for different reasons. I got to correct that last statement. He wasn't an underdog against Tsitsipas. He was a pretty heavy favorite. If you look at, in terms of the betting odds, he was a, a pretty heavy favorite, decently, like minus 300 range, bet 30 bucks to win 10 bucks for those who, who aren't fluent in that language. Um, glaring weakness. The second serve, I thought, on clay wasn't looking great. So let's see if that gets better on the quicker courts. All right, we move on. Next one is from Katarina. Federer's game seems solid, but it's getting obvious that his legs aren't there yet considering how fatigued he was at the French Open. What does he need to do to go deep at Wimbledon? Do you think his body will hold up? Which of the next-gen players would you rank as number one threat to the big three, or is there any other player that has the game to go deep in this year's Wimbledon? Roger Federer loses today in three sets to Felix Auger, Ali Asim, and Hala. I thought it was a, a really fantastic performance by FAA. The serve, the forehand firing. We know how difficult it is to break him when those two things are true. He's got a, an incredible combination. One, two punches out of this world. The forehand is can be so deadly on faster surfaces. He takes it so early, and it's quite compact as well. So I think he's got a great grass court forehand. It's no surprise because he grew up kind of modeling his game around Roger Federer. And I think I see a lot of Federer forehand in the FAA forehand. Obviously, Felix's is not to that level of uh, consistency or really effectiveness in, in many ways, but still, I, I see a lot of resemblance there. It's a good grass court forehand. And I think we should start with this is a great performance by FAA, who's building some, some form on the grass just made a final last week, now through to the Hala uh, quarterfinals, I want to say, uh, building some form after a, a really rough and, at the very least, up-and-down clay court season. But for Roger Federer, it was a lackluster performance uh, in, in many ways after the first set, and his legs are looking pretty shaky at the moment. It looks like he's not quite there with his legs. Uh, I think that that is materializing in his first serve not being as effective as it needs to be. It just seems like that's physical to me, and I don't know if it's all in the legs. I think some tennis coaches argue that legs are a little bit overrated on the serve. I don't know how I feel about that statement. I would I would have to, to survey some more coaches who I trust, but um, it just seems like 
the first serve is not as effective as it needs to be. And it got worse and worse and worse as this match went on against Felix. Not only did the percentage dip, but just even the 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 potency of it went down. And I just think that there have been a lot of matches from the Basilishvili match to the Chilich match at the French Open where it seems like Federer's making landing first serves, but it's uh they're getting blown up in his face with aggressive returns, which shouldn't really be happening with a serve, uh, the quality of Rogers. The return was also a challenge here, and one thing that is beginning to enter my radar is reaction time, which is something that always goes down with age. And we see it in, you know, a position like a goaltender in hockey. We see them decline in age, not because it's a very, very physical position, but because literally it's all about your reaction time. The puck is coming at you 90 miles per hour. And that's why we see sometimes goaltenders decline with with age somewhat rapidly. And I think about that on the return for Roger Federer and are his reactions slowing. Uh, There was a point at the net where... Felix hit a low backhand passing shot uh, from the baseline, and Roger Federer was guessing to his backhand side, and it whizzed by him on the forehand side. It was kind of two feet away from him, and it was it it was surprising. He shouldn't have lost the point because he should have been able to hit a forehand volley there, but he didn't trust his reactions enough to uh, that he he felt that he needed to sell out and anticipate to one side. That's the kind of thing it's surprising to see. It seems rusty. It seems a little bit slow for him. Grass court tennis moves at such a fast pace. So those reactions need to be fast and they need to be crisp. And that's something that I'll be watching as Roger Federer moves on. Uh, A couple matches, two, three matches, not a big enough sample size. And it might just take Federer longer than Wimbledon for him to get to 100%. Right now, of course, it doesn't appear he's there. And I do want to uh, also read read what he said after the match uh, because he shed some light on what might be happening from a mental perspective. He said, quote, It was not a good attitude from my side. I was disappointed in the way I was feeling on court, the, thing, the way things were going, that I'm not getting better spells and all that stuff. I think the whole difficulty of the comeback got to me as well a little bit. And how I have to push on every point, try to make things happening. Uh, I realized it was not going to be my day. There was nothing I could do. I started to get really negative, And this is not normally how I am. It's not something I'm happy about and proud about. At the same time, if you look at my, whatever, 1,500 matches I've played, these things can happen. The good things, the good thing is that I know it won't happen next time and the next time and the next time that I'm going to be on court. I think that's also one of the reasons I wanted to take some time in between matches and the press conference to truly understand why I did feel this way. Speak to Yvonne a little bit, just figure it out, and then straight away, head up, look forward, don't make any silly decisions right now, just stay positive, and we take it on to the next goal, which is clearly Wimbledon. So I just want to give Roger Federer the last word on that, some interesting insight there. All right, let's go to Milan. Not the place, the person. Uh, We haven't had Wimbledon since 2019. The next-gen guys have gotten much better at the slam since then. So what do you think their games are like on grass and Wimbledon nowadays? And how will their lack of experience on the surface tie into fighting the big three? Throw in team in there for good measure. Yeah. 
Uh, not a lot of Wimbledon results to speak of between a lot of the younger players, so many of them. But I don't think it's really fair to look at that and then to assess how they might do at Wimbledon. The X factor is the movement and who is going to be comfortable moving on grass. Now, I don't really speak from from experience when I talk about moving on grass because uh, I have never played on a grass court. They're just so rare and hard to come by here in the Northeast uh, of the United States. There's uh, there's one I know of an hour away. Uh, it's, it's not, you know, it's just not very common. Um, but from, from all I've heard, you know, the big difference is just the slickness of the court. The fact that you can't really trust yourself to, to dig in and you have to have a soft way about your movement. You can, you can try to slide on grass like Novak, but clearly that's not the norm. And some players just don't feel comfortable moving on the surface. Uh, I saw, you know, Aslan Karatsev in his match against Cameron Nori today, uh, clearly just uncomfortable slipping, sliding, uh, Karatsev has barely played on grass. I don't think he had played on grass since like 2013 or 2016. It had been so long since he had a single match. So that is the X factor. That's what you can't predict. But there are, you know, what what you can begin to look at is what's important on grass. Uh, first of all, everyone doesn't move quite as well. So it makes defense hard. So offensive tennis, uh, assertive and front foot and kind of sometimes just aggressive tennis. You know, I don't know. It's pretty simple, right? You want to hurt your opponent before they can hurt you because offense is easier to come by. You can look at a guy like, I don't know, let me give a sh- extreme and very hippie example here. This is hippie tennis example. Take a guy like Adrian Manorino. Grass is his best surface. Why? The clay is too slow. He doesn't have enough power. He can't attack on clay. He can't do it. On grass, he can. Why? Everyone can. It doesn't matter how underpowered you are. It doesn't matter if you're Gilles Simone. Um, You don't need power. The court will help you attack. So that's why offense comes at such a premium on grass because if you don't hurt your opponent, your opponent is going to hurt you. You have to take advantage and play early offense. The serve is a little bit more important, of course, when it comes to stroke mechanics. Backhand slice is more effective. Uh, net play um, can be very effective because if you take it early and hit good approach shots and come to net, it's very difficult for for opponents to move into the corners and hit passing shots. Um, flat hitting is rewarded. So if I look at the the crop of if if I look at kind of the the younger players in the rankings, I I'm expecting big things out of Daniil Medvedev. If he can figure out the surface, he's got a great serve, a great return. Uh, hope we'll see how he responds to, um, his court positioning because on grass, generally you need to play a little bit further up in the court with the ball, not bouncing as high enough and the requirement for you to play a little bit more aggressive. Uh, we'll see if Medvedev moves up in the court, but the big serve and the flat hitting the piercing, uh, depth, that Medvedev is able to hit with the ability to redirect on both the forehand and the backhand, which is an extremely valuable asset and skill on grass. Something, you know, one of the reasons why Djokovic and, and Feder have, have been so great on the surface. I expect big things out of Medvedev. Uh, concerns about Tsitsipas's return. Concerns about Dominic Team's return. Zverev, not offensive enough on this surface historically. Just doesn't take enough initiative and that's going to be a big problem. I also don't think he loves the low bounce. So Zverev, meh, 
in the middle. Andre Rublev, yeah, like him, big things. Takes the ball early, hits aggressively into small targets, likes to dictate, and also has good compact strokes. I think he takes the return nice and early. That should help him. And when it comes to his serve, he hits a slice serve. He hits a flat serve. His kick serve stinks. It's just not good yet. It's getting better, but it's still not good. And Rublev is the kind of guy who is going to serve much better on grass than he possibly can on clay because his slice and his flat are going to be more effective. His kick, maybe he can just get away from it. Hopefully he can. If he can hit a slice serve and not double fault, then he should do it just like Andy Murray. That's what Murray did on the grass, and it's very effective, and I expect Djokovic to do that as well. So Andre Rublev and Daniil Medvedev, the Russians, those are the two guys who I'd circle. Matteo Berrettini as well. He's 25 years old, so I don't know if you consider him in that group. But Berrettini as well, someone to watch out for with his big serve, his big forehand, and his ability to protect the backhand side with the slice. All right. Let me just see how long I'm, I've been going just so I can have an idea. Does it, does it even tell me? doesn't even tell me. What the heck? Okay. All right, next one is from Alex. In an interview, Goran Ivanisevic said that he hoped Novak would draw Nadal for the semis. He thought it would be easier to beat Nadal in the semis than in the finals because in the finals, Rafa goes into unbeatable mode. Um, do you think that played a role? At least in the finals, they would play earlier. Suits Rafa more. Also, how would you rate uh, the achievement of winning all Masters and all Grand Slams twice? I think that maybe winning one or two less slams, but instead having this record is maybe better. Keep up the work, uh, the good work, Alex. I appreciate the comment. Um, All right, well, you know, I almost think it's disrespectful to both of these champions and how well they played to say that the stage of the semifinals or the finals affected their performance. So I'm going to kind of throw that out. I don't like that. Um, I don't think it would have been any difference, but time of day, now we're talking. Conditions, now now we can have a discussion that I think does not kind of denigrate the fact that both of them showed up. Both of them showed up and played great tennis. Uh, But when it comes to the conditions... You know that that's that's an interesting um, that's an interesting conversation. I would say uh, if you just look at um, Nadal's forehand potency, Rafa's serving, and just how well Djokovic was neutralizing the serve, how easily it, it probably would have helped him if the conditions were a little bit uh, faster and that they weren't the nighttime conditions. I know that you know it reminded a lot of people of the the Schwartzman conditions that Nadal lost in, where uh, that was another match where his serve just wasn't helping him at, at all, and it was really getting very slow out there. But you know, you you look at the conditions that Nadal beat Djokovic in easily last year, and. They were kind of similar to what you would see here with the lower bounces. I don't know what the speed of the court would have would have been if you compare it to, to that. And then you also take into account that Nadal started off the match great, uh, up five love, and things were rolling along. So, you know, I, I'll just put it this way. I didn't find conditions to be obviously a massive factor here. I didn't. Um, 
that doesn't mean that they're not zero factor. But again, this is another match where when I when I zoomed out and I assessed what were the main factors of the match and what are the the five discussion the five things I'm going to hit on when I do my my Monday match analysis after the match. Conditions just weren't in the top five. You know, they might come in at number seven or number eight at number nine if I'm going to list off the things that affected the match. But just just not up there for me to be honest. In terms of the achievement of winning all Masters and Grand Slams twice. You know, I prefer not to not to size this up and to say, oh, like, where does this stack up, right? Would you rather win 19 slams and have more variability or would you rather win, you know, 21 and only have one French Open or something like that? Let's just think about what this tells us about Novak. The fact that his all-around game, his, you know, the the kind of weakness, void, uh, error-free, just all-around solid baseline game that doesn't have any holes or major weaknesses. You know, that style that Novak has brought to the court has transcended surfaces and conditions as well as any style or any player we've ever seen. So we can use these things, I think, to tell us about, well, surface... uh, Surface variability, for example. And instead of like, instead of trying to fit this puzzle into some over, overly ambitious kind of goat debate and, you know, goat ranking, which just is really impossible to square for people, uh, let's just use that, those records and, and say them for, for what they are, which is that. In terms of getting results everywhere, in terms of challenging Feder on grass and Nadal on clay, you know, two of the two of the best players of all time on on their best surfaces. You know, even though even though Feder was a little bit past his prime when Novak got to play him at Wimbledon, regardless of that, you know, these two players in their home on their home surfaces, Novak was able to take both of them on because that's how that's how all around his game was and that's how well his game translates to all surfaces. That should be the legacy of those records, right? Next one from Michael Nevis is Chilich a contender possibly to win Wimbledon. Marin Chilich on fire coming off a title um, just beat Fabio Fanini, so he's on to the quarterfinals in Queens. He's looking rejuvenated, very good to see. He, is, uh, he can use his big game to really bully guys on this surface, and he's comfortable. He's one of the players who just has so much experience on grass. Uh, he's comfortable moving on the surface. He's got very soft footwork, uh, really quick feet, small adjustment steps, and I think that helps him move on the grass. Um I don't think he can win a major right now. I don't think he has enough self-belief or confidence in himself, uh, and I don't think he's consistent enough either. But he's a, certainly a, a very dangerous guy, and just look out for him because he is on the way back right now. I don't expect him to have like a career re- resurgence, but you know, I think that a lot of players will end up uh, will end their careers having 
their best results on grass because it's a little bit less physically demanding. It takes a lot of the kind of racket skill and the power, the things that just don't really diminish, don't ever really leave a player. Where you know Chilich is not doesn't doesn't have the same movement, uh, the same agility that he once did. Just isn't as patient as he once was. It's hurt his consistency and his shot tolerance. But on grass, he can kind of overcome these things. There's no doubt. So I think um, he's definitely dangerous, no doubt. This one is from Stefano Disperati. Hi, Gil. What do you think of Lorenzo Massetti? In Italy, we're starting to think that he could become better than Sinner. His variety, his artistry, his touch, his unbelievable backhand make him one of the purest talents on the tour. But a champion is more than talent. And Lorenzo proved against Nole on the mighty Philippe Chatrier that he is fearless, that he can handle the pressure of big moments. He, he wasn't afraid for going for his shots in front of the number one of the world. These are the stigmata of the true champion. Could Massetti be the next big thing? This time, for real, Stefano Disperati. Um, I just love how that comment was written with uh, the Italian flair that I would only expect out of uh, out of my friend Stefano. Um, so I love this debate, and that's why I definitely wanted to get to this comment. The whole Musetti versus Sinner thing is really awesome. It's super fun uh, because clearly Musetti is more polished. You know, he's got this. Uh, he's got very few major glaring weaknesses in his movement, in his tech technique. He has so many different shots that it takes a lot of players so long to develop, and he's a teenager. And for him to have the 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 number of tools in his shed that he has is so impressive and he's so polished as a player where where sinner has holes but his rate of development has been so impressive and his baseline weaponry is so overpowering so overwhelming how well he strikes the ball the power he has off both wings the the way he can generate offense with his backhand, which I still think can can end his career as one of the greatest of all times when it comes to how offensive he can play on his backhand wing. So it's this uh, it's a tremendous battle that they're having. I think that I think Musetti does have a chance to be better than Yannick Sinner, but it's it's a question of if Sinner can fill the gaps, can fill the holes, and. It's gonna be it's gonna be very interesting. I don't have like a I don't feel too strongly about it either way, but I just want to frame it as you know, Musetti's actually in some ways further ahead than Yannick Sinner because when he develops a little bit more physically, you know, he really has all of the all of the shots to to go very, very far and just needs to refine a couple of things, but he's very close. And I do want to see how he he deals with the quicker surfaces because he plays very far back, has very long strokes, uh, might struggle on return. I want to see some of these things, uh, but but he, clearly he's a natural, and Sinner is is less a magician and more a technician. And let's see if he can fix up some of the things in the garage that he needs to work on, primarily his serve, but uh, also um, his defense to a certain extent. So. This one from Mr. Bale. 
easier to pronounce than the first name, Mr. Bale. I uh, do believe Nadal's endurance is limited now. Considering his Aussie Open and French Open final sets, I felt the earliest sign was U.S. Open 2019 when basically his team said he couldn't even wear his pants after the finals against Medvedev. Uh, I feel uh, he faces a five-setter before a final. He won't be able to win the Grand Slam. What's your opinion? I think he couldn't put on his pants. I hope that he could wear his pants. Um Certainly, we've seen now two Grand Slams in a row where Nadal has fizzled out in the final set. I think that was true against Tsitsipas, although he managed his fatigue pretty well. I think he definitely was tired against Tsitsipas in Australia. And the only area that I think Nadal really showed his age against Djokovic is the fact that he could not continue the intensity that he played with for the opening three sets, and he totally couldn't put up the the resistance that he could in the fourth set. And that's why it didn't become... I think if, if those two were younger, and especially if Nadal were younger, it could have actually rounded itself into an all-time classic match. And although players like Andy Roddick and um, maybe Murray, I don't know, some of the players took to social media and said, well, this is the greatest match of all time. This is incredible. I think that they were getting a little bit caught up in the moment. The reality is the third set was one of the greatest of all time. Just, you know... Definitely one of the best sets I've seen. But in terms of like maintaining level, Djokovic and Nadal have done this for hours and hours and hours on end. And in this match, they they quite frankly could not. And certainly we've seen Nadal reach the end of his gas tank. But I think the key is that he cannot he cannot defend for five sets anymore. He cannot. He must dictate. He must control the the effort that it requires to defend versus the effort it requires to dictate. These things are not even in the same on the same planet. So the reason why I think Nadal got so tired is not because he has no gas tank and he has no lungs and he has no legs or endurance. I don't really think that's the reason. I think he was running way too much and that's because of how Novak was playing him. That's because of how well Novak was playing. I talk about this all the time, but, you know, if, um, if Rafa Nadal plays me, he's not going to have to run at all. Like, let's not, you know, let's not diminish the fact that when you play Novak, you have to run way more than how much you have to run against any other player. And that was something that I was using for Roger Federer. Because people were saying, well, Federer has no endurance, right? He keeps fizzling out against against Djokovic. He, he needs to win in, in straights or else he loses. And again, it's like, let's remember how this works in tennis. When you play a great player, you run more. That's how it is. So Nadal needs to make sure that he dictates on a, on a more regular basis. By the way... Um, I'm going to try to keep getting through these, chug along, and then maybe maybe I go an hour and a half for this one. Maybe. I think I might. Because I might go an hour with the comments that we are that I've already received, and then I'll go to your uh, your super chat, your live chat, and, and all that good stuff. I'm trying to see the chat. There it is. Um, okay. Next one. From Rain Fred Romero. One, who is the best tennis player which has the least raw talent ability currently on the men's tour? I would say right now the player who I find 
just generating these awesome results who may might not have the talent to to really match it is probably Cameron Norrie, the 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 British lefty. Um, you know, he is seeming to really get everything out of what he can do. One of the rare players who played college tennis for four years and then just kind of worked his way up, but he is match tough, uh, tries, gives 110% on every single point, is uh, completely uh, mentally uncrackable and so positive on the court and continues to work and apply the pressure and he has an awkward game style doesn't mind winning ugly a lot, puts a lot of balls in the court, is willing to work really hard, is a, a, a tremendous physical fitness, but I would say it's Cam Norrie. Second part of the question, would you agree that Ferrer's play style in the current era of tennis lacks the necessary attacking tennis, and thus Schwartzman's more aggressive play style would be the most ideal play style for an undersized tennis player in this era of tennis? Thoughts? Uh, thanks for the question. In my specialty, the specialty, which is assessing how to win if you're short. I'm like 5'7", everyone, for those who don't know that. Um, so I am um, I am a short tennis player. So, you know, you're really getting to my heart with the question. One, I'm going to push back a little bit on the, the whole David Ferrer has no weapons. He's a defensive player. I, I always thought that was kind of untrue, and I think it just... It took away from how good his forehand was. The forehand was good. It wasn't really a knockout punch, but he'd knock you out in three. You know, it was more of like a one, two, three punch, but the forehand really was a, a good shot. And there was firepower coming out of Ferrer's forehand. I thought it was a it was a heavy shot. He could hit it close to the lines. I think it was something that that um again. He needed to be in good position. That's certainly true. Like he wasn't hitting winners from the middle of the court and four feet behind the baseline. You know, it, it didn't have that. But it was a it was a big shot. Um, but the fact that Schwartzman takes the ball early, takes time away, takes it on the rise, and that's how he kind of uh, makes up for the fact that in his frame he couldn't possibly have the 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 power that some of the other players on tour have. I think that is the, by far, the quality that is the most, the one that I would most recommend to any player under five foot ten. I would say if you're under five foot ten, the best way that you could make up for that and try to guarantee slash ensure your success, I think the best way is you have to be able to take the ball early on the rise. And you need that coordination and those racket skills because that is ultimately how you're going to make up for firepower. You know, if you hit the ball uh, 90 miles per hour from eight feet behind the baseline, that is the same as hitting the ball 70 miles per hour from on top of the baseline. And that's that's just the best way to take time away and make up for uh, for shorter stature. So that's kind of my answer for for that, no doubt about it. So in that respect, I do think Schwartzman is a little bit more um, repeatable as a as a tactic for someone who wants to play um, to play quickly. Uh, excuse me, not play quickly, play well despite uh, short stature. But you got to move well also. That's of course the common thread with Ferrer and Schwartzman is they have great feet and and they move super well. Question from Will Casal. Is it fair to say that people have unrealistic expectations for players who develop physically at a very young age and have good results early as a result? 
FAA is an example of this. He physically developed very early so he could surpass all of his peers, but then his actual game doesn't necessarily have elite potential. Ryan Harrison is another example, one of the few men in history to get tour wins under the age of 16, but hit his ceiling pretty early. To me, as a prospect such as Yannick Sinner is much more likely to truly be an elite player, given that he is the elite ground stroke slash talent already to achieve a top 35 or so ranking, but physically still has so much more room to grow. Federer and Djokovic both develop more similarly, I think. Nadal is one of those ultra-rare people to develop early physical and have elite ground strokes and talent. I think that this is pretty spot on because there is sometimes a pretty poor correlation, a less-than-perfect correlation between results on the juniors and results on the big tour. And I think that this is most... uh, this is usually the culprit. The culprit is usually that a player is physically dominant uh, at the junior level, and then players are just going to catch up to them. You're no longer going to be the only player who has filled into their body. Um, you know, it's just not going to be that way forever. That's going to end. So that's why you always have to look at a player like right now, um, uh, Holger Rune. The, uh, the young, uh, he's Danish, I believe, from Denmark, right? Number one junior player. But physically, um, pretty big, pretty developed. You know, I, I'm, not, I'm not making an assessment on him right now. I'm not saying he's that guy. But that's why when you have a, a junior number one, you always need to kind of look at that and think, okay, uh, is he just ahead of everyone else physically? And is, is that why they're dominating? So I don't have too much to add to this, but I, I think that for sure... Uh, it's fair to say that this is a common uh, reason why sometimes players will uh, be misjudged. Their potential will be misjudged. This is from Max Dengvu. Both Medvedev and Tsitsipas went to five sets in their first slam final and showed incredible mental fortitude. Who do you see as having the better mental game? Really easy answer for me on this. Medvedev's a better front runner. Tsitsipas is better from behind. I think what where Stefanos has shown some some shortcomings is just trying to deal with the nerves when he hasn't gotten to a when he's on a really big stage and he has the lead and he's become the favorite and he's trying to close out a match. That's where I think he has shown some vulnerability. Where Medvedev has shown some vulnerability is he's nothing's working, he's losing, he's upset about something, whether it be something in the crowd or the chair umpire, a call went against him, and he loses focus and he starts kind of clowning out there and just not playing the best of his abilities. Um, but Medvedev, I'll, I would say, is someone who is so good with the lead and he, and he develops a, a swagger, a confidence, and a, a, a way he walks around the court and this laser-like focus where every point... He's never never giving you anything, and he's almost running up the score on you. If you look at some of his early round one, round two, round three in majors, he is absolutely obliterating dudes, obliterating them. So that's something I've seen with Medvedev. But with Tsitsipas, he never gives up, just never. Always believes, always continues to fight. Um, so that's how I would assess their mental games. They're different. Uh, I, would, uh, I would throw some nuance in there. 
From Andrew Torres, how would you describe the state of men's tennis in the United States? What do you think it will take to produce another major contender, considering we haven't produced a Grand Slam winner since Andy Roddick? Do you think it has to do with the apparent waning popularity of tennis in the States or something else entirely? Appreciate your great analysis during the clay season and look forward to your thoughts on Wimbledon. Appreciate it, Andrew. Thanks, my man. Um, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think waning popularity of tennis in the United States has uh, is the number one culprit. It's not my sense. Uh, now, I wasn't really around when Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras were kids. Uh, I wasn't around when Courier was a kid. Uh, I'm younger than them, so I can't really speak to the culture around junior tennis. Uh, but ultimately, yes, like I, I think, I think tennis was and still is a bit of a a niche sport for the best athletes when you're growing up. But um, I still think that te- uh, participation in tennis is going up, and that's not really what I would point to. I think I just think we haven't really adapted to the modern game. You know, we need um, we need clay courts in the country. We got to play on more clay courts. We need to teach um, racket speed, generation of pace, better footwork. It, it can't just be big dudes with power who hit the ball hard. It, it's just got to be more than that. So I'm encouraged by Brandon Nakashima. I am encouraged by Sebastian Cora, who seems to be a, a more talented than any any of the players who uh, who have come along in a long time. Uh, he needs to let's see if he has the movement. Let's see if he has the let's see if he if he moves well enough once he gets to the elite level and he starts playing better players, starts contending for bigger titles. That's kind of my question with Cora. But in terms of racket talent, technique, absolutely pure. Uh, really pure striker of the ball. I'm excited about him as well. So I think looking up, I think, you know, uh, things will get better before they get worse. But obviously we've had some guys, you know, TFO with the the technique. It's been, it's going to be hard to get to the elite level with that technique, in my opinion. Also some focus issues, some mental issues. I'm hoping that he's getting past that. Taylor Fritz, just the movement, not there. Just not a good enough natural athlete. He just didn't hit the genetic lottery. I think he's uh, maximizing his talent. Opelka, he's going to take a while. He still could have a great career. He's just going to take some time. His forehand needs to be better or he's got no shot. He's just got to improve that shot. Um, that's kind of my, my rundown, my run through. YIV asks, isn't endurance the main skill that separates the big three, Djokovic in particular these days, from our most promising young guns, especially in best of five? When it comes to separation, we often say about the difference in talent between these two groups as the main factor, but they are all quite talented and skillful, aren't they? And nowadays, recovering and fitness are much better than before, helping to prolong sportsmen's careers. So we shouldn't get surprised from an older generation. So can we say the difference in stamina was the key factor that helped Djokovic against Tsitsipas at RG and Med at AO, not against Medvedev, right? That was a quick match. Nadal against Med at US Open. And the, the minute youngsters keep up with them in the, uh, in the endurance element, the momentum changes. I'd push back on that. I don't agree. I think that if you got these guys on a treadmill and had like an actual endurance contest or uh, if you made them do a triathlon, I don't think Nadal and Djokovic would would come out on top. So I think you got to throw some nuance in there. Uh, the fact that w- once it goes to a fifth set, let's just talk about fifth sets. These great champions, these great 
uh, tacticians like Nadal and Djokovic have had four sets to feel out the match, to feel out the tactics, to try to find the winning strategy. Uh, they also have the most experience in the uh, in the high pressure situations at the end of matches. They also have potentially done less running than you because, again, Medvedev, uh, excuse me, Djokovic makes you run a lot. Nadal at his best makes you run a lot. So you can't just look at, well, this player is more tired than the other. Well, that means they have worse endurance. Who's doing more running? Who's doing more leg work? That that comes into play. And lastly, I saw a lot of people as Novak Djokovic came back from down two sets to love twice and wins the French Open. I saw a lot of people saying, look at this. Look at this. Um, best of five is a huge factor for why the big three are still on top of the game. A lot of people have said that. And... Man, there's kind of a problem with with that logic when you look at the the list of most Masters titles with Nadal and Djokovic at the very top. And who's third? Roger Federer. So that's where it becomes hard. And I agree. The cream rises to the top in best of five. It's, it's less likely that someone's going to redline their game for two sets and upset the big three at a major. I agree with all that. I don't completely disagree. But really, is it is it that big a factor? Is best of five that big a factor when the same guys have dominated the Masters until recently when I just think motivation is just not quite there for them at this stage of their careers when it comes to the Masters? You know, I think that um I think that it's it's not really about endurance. I think it's about other things, to be honest. Just a couple more from YouTube, and then I'm going to go to Twitter real quick, and then I'll get your questions in the live chat. Let's take this one from SJ. Federer said this year that it's a misconception that clay is slow and that it's actually mostly faster than hard courts nowadays. He said some hard courts, just to clarify there. If you watch a clay match from 2006 compared to more recent ones, there's a, actually a pretty clear difference in speed, yet no one really discusses this when talking about surface homogenization since Nadal continued to dominate. My question is, do you think Nadal would have dominated Clay even more after his young years if it stayed slow, or would his dominance be roughly the same? I think he may have dominated Clay even harder, taking into account that Nadal went on an 81-match Clay streak win, uh, win streak from 2005 to 07 when the surface was slower and Nadal wasn't even in his prime yet. Well, my answer to this would be, for the most part, like the first thing I have to say here is how much more can you possibly dominate a surface SJ? Like, my God, how could he dominate it more? Like, I don't know. Maybe he doesn't drop any sets. Like again, as you pointed out, he was completely dominating. So it's hard to say, but obviously Nadal has completely changed when it comes to, um, how he plays on a clay court. So I think ultimately his uh, his style probably suited the slower courts pretty well back then because it was just impossible to hit through them. Nobody, nobody could get through them. Roger Federer couldn't really get through them. Um, when you took his speed, his defense, the slower surf, the, you know, the the slower court speed, all, you know, all that together, it's kind of a monster to play him. And remember, he could go all day. He would never miss. He still had that whipping, kicking. Uh, forehand. He he didn't hit it down the line much. That's a big difference from how he plays now. Now we can hit it down the line. But 
you know, he was a nightmare then, and he's a nightmare now for a different reason. But I, I think that, you know, he's adapted his game. I think the the fast clay court, the slow clay court, I don't think it matters much for him anymore. I don't think it's too big a deal. Um, so I'm not really sure. You know, I can't really say that if the clay courts were faster back then, I think he, he would have been fine. But um, I think the slow clay courts probably helped him back then if they were a lot slower, just because of his speed and his defense and how he played. But, it, you know, it's... Um, and the fact that he his serve was really just a point starter back then. So it was key that he would just break serve over and over and over again. And he would need to neutralize the returns in, either, in order to do that. So the fact that the, the court was slow, I'm sure that helped him just neutralize every return, break serve, start the point with his own serve, do nothing more with it, you know, play long rallies, outlast, grind down. Um, you know, it probably worked out for him that the courts were like that. From uh, Haider Raha, in my opinion, Novak Djokovic did to Rafael Nadal at the French what Nadal does to his opponents, breaking down the backhand with his forehand. How was he able to do that this year? Second, the conditions last year should have helped Djokovic even more than why was it such a lopsided affair? Again, like, yeah, that's why I'm not getting into the conditions much because it's just, uh, it's hard to reconcile that. We had slower, lower bouncing conditions last year. We saw how it went. We had five love for Nadal to start this match. Uh, it was more, you know, I, I prefer to focus on Novak's tactics when it comes to what changed here. And again, returns to the backhand, which Novak has just never been able to do. For whatever reason, this is the best he's ever done it. Part of it is Nadal's serve, but but he won that battle to get returns to Nadal's backhand. And the second part of it is... Um, hitting the the cross-court forehand less linearly. It's not just going cross-court. It's are you breaking the sideline? Are you hitting heavy, heavy topspin, dragging Nadal off the court, making him uncomfortable in his backhand corner? Those are the two main tactical uh, bullet points for me. From... Kaplanoch? I, I, I don't know. See, it's not even a name. Hi, Gil. I always look forward to watching your show. You mentioned before that you didn't think any of the big three would be able to, to achieve winning all four Grand Slams at least twice. Here are my questions. What made you make that statement back then? And now that Novak has achieved winning all four at least twice, what is your new conclusions now? Yeah, uh, I said that because I didn't think Novak would ever be able to win Roland Garros. Like, I was wrong. He proved me wrong. I'm, I'm not afraid to admit that. I didn't think he'd, uh, he'd win again. So I thought that Nadal was in a good position to win one or two more um, or, you know, or more because I don't like to predict longevity, but I thought Nadal was in position to be winning them. And then I figured by the time it was no longer Nadal's time, it might be Tsitsipas's time. It might be team's time. It might be Carlos Alcaraz's time. Uh, you know, I just thought that by the time Nadal was done, Novak would be done. Um, so that's why I made it back then. And I still think that Roland Garros will remain the most difficult major for Djokovic to win. I think the others will all be, I think the U.S. Open might be also the second hardest, but it, it should still be the hardest. He did it. You know, th there's nothing more to say. That is something that I think will continue to be difficult for him to do. It will take tremendous, spectacular tennis for him to do it. He pulled it off in 2021 with, again, that's why I say it was one of his finest runs in, in his career, one of the best runs he's had. And that's what it will take for him to win a third. So 
Um, again, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, I wouldn't be. Let's see how he's looking on clay next year. He he did unlock some things with the way he was hitting his forehand. Uh, but let's see what the field looks next year. I don't want to jump ahead. Uh, we don't know we don't know what things will look like next year. Is Novak Djokovic the goat now? After beating Rafa at RG and going to win the tournament, he now has a historic double career Grand Slam, which the other two have not. I just thought I'd readdress the the goat conversation, and this will be the last one before I go to Twitter. Um, but like you know, you guys have heard my my take on this. I don't I don't make declarations about the goat debate. I think it's an impossible question to answer. There's way too many factors. Uh, everyone is going to have arguments in their own, uh, according to their own kind of preferences and biases. And I feel that it is not a conversation that is going to lead to. Uh, constructive discussions about what these two are great at, uh, excuse me, three, what these three are great at and how they differ, how they are similar, um, you know, how they accomplish different things in their careers at different times. I mean, there are just, there are nuanced and intelligent discussions to be had here and I can give you nothing intelligent about who is the greatest of all time. I can't give you that right now. Now, uh, obviously, Novak in the record books is God. He's on a he's he's tearing crap up now. He's tearing shit up, tearing shit up. Uh, so, you know, he's got more to he's got more records to break. But I do think that he has a chance to break every meaningful record in the sport. And then, without a doubt, uh, he will be the most accomplished tennis player of all time. But if you guys know other sports. Um, you know that there are some players who are the most accomplished in the sport and some people still don't think they're the greatest. Like, you know, LeBron, LeBron James can win six titles. He can, he can, he can equal MJ and there are still going to be people who think MJ was better. You know, that, that is still going to, that's just going to be the case. So, um, I haven't really changed my decision on the goat debate. You know, it's still it's still not something that I think is going to produce, you know, anything constructive or anything good. I don't. I love the slam race though. I'm fired up, folks. It's great for tennis. It's so good. I'm so pumped up and so happy that we have this. It's magical. We need to cherish it. Uh, you know, we have two at 20, we have one at 19. This is the stuff of dreams. This is going to be really really fun to follow. And it's going to be so good for the sport. I think it's going to bring a lot of eyes, um, kind of uh, mainstream attention on the sport. And it's going to be fantastic to see these three duke it out. Even if, I don't know if Federer is going to be able to get himself in the mix here. Um, but it's going to be really fun to see how this plays out. So I love the slam race. But that is, uh, you know, that's very different than trying to figure out, you know, what is the criteria for greatest of all time? All right, I'm going to my mentions now. Let's go to Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore gross is the handle to follow. By the way, Wimbledon power rankings. Let's address this. I'm going to I'm gonna make a video for that. I'm not going to do that in the mailbag. That was the top comment, Wimbledon power rankings, but I'm not going to do that in the mailbag. All right, let's see what we got here. Any guess on if Rafa plays Wimby? Is there anything that suggests that he's not going to? 
Um, okay, we have thoughts on Roger Federer's performance today versus Felix. Uh, Marin Cilic's grass court resurgence. I covered both of those. That one's from Vonch. Uh, Federer's performance versus Felix. The serve is my number one concern right now. Uh, mental, you know, focus. Yeah, he got he got too negative, and uh, that was definitely a bullet point. And uh, the return of serve, his reaction time, I'm curious. I'm following that. I'm not, I'm not ready to make any declarations on that, but I'm curious about just are his reactions sharp enough right now for the fast-paced grass court tennis? Thoughts on Corda's performance against RBA? Missed that match, but great win. RBA is fantastic on clay, and I'm very high on Corda when it comes to his return of serve is fantastic, by the way. His racket skills... Um, and how short he keeps his strokes on his backhand. Backhand return, one of Corda's best shots, keeps it pretty compact on the forehand, uh, generates big power, easy power off both wings. I think that he's very Tomas Burdick-like, and Corda, I think, could have big success on the grass. Look out for the guy, and uh, I'm high on him, no doubt. What do you think about Novak's ATP ranking? 16,500 in June 2016. It was the most dominant stretch of tennis ever, right? Opinions on Djokovic. This one from Emily. Opinions on Djokovic playing doubles in Mallorca. I think he should have taken the week to rest, but maybe he's doing it to show respect for Nadal. I don't think it's for Nadal. It's not. Doubles is rest. Doubles is rest for these guys. Like, if you look at what singles is at the highest level, Believe me, doubles is resting. That is working on serve, hitting some volleys, working on return, having some fun, getting in some routine. Doubles is rest. Um, I'd be curious for a quick recap of the things you would have told Steph in sets three through five as a coach if coaching were allowed. Uh, this one from JDB. What would I tell Steph? That's an interesting one, guys. Um, I would tell him that you have to serve more to the forehand on the second serve. Um, I would tell him that you have to go over, go after Djokovic's second serve a little bit more. Um, I would say stay patient on the backhand, go for it when it's there, but, but you need to stay solid there and you need to trade cross court more than you're hitting drop shots. And trying to trying to rip down the line in, in big moments. Those are those are probably the, the the main things. Who can make a sneaky run at Wimbledon on the men's side? I gotta comb through the field, but I think Jan Leonard Struff could be one of the more dangerous unseated players. He continues to just somehow not be seated at majors, despite how dangerous his game is. So look out for him. Look out for Marin Cilic. I know he's starting to get some attention, and it's not really a, an underdog pick, uh, but I think he's someone who could also get some attention. I got to comb through the field. Tough to do that one off uh, off the dome. Steve Flink interview. Someone's asking about that. I would say, uh, oh, th I had to flip these around, so that'll be on Friday. I planned on doing this on Wednesday, but I'm going to talk to Steve Flink tomorrow. It'll be released Friday morning. So that's that. Hold the LFC from uh, V. Is emphasis on the four-court game overstated on grass with modern racket tech? 
I'd say transition game is more needed on slower surfaces to finish points. Of course, it's a nice skill set to have, but you can get away with having good serve, return, and consistent depth on ground strokes. Um, that's an interesting one. It's a very interesting question. While you can finish points um, from the back of the court on grass, I still think the the more you're... If you can take a short ball and, and move forward behind it, though... I still think, like like any surface, you are. Um, it's gonna be harder to it's gonna be harder to hit that pass on grass. The ball's gonna stay lower, and it's gonna skid through the court more, and the movement is more difficult. So, the reason why I think it's still a hot, higher percentage offense and it's still valuable is because players can't really use their slice defense, and the ball stays lower. So I just think it's harder to line up the pass. So I don't really think it's overrated. I think it's a good thing to have in your in your repertoire. All right, I'm ready to um I'm ready to go to the live chat. I see some people complaining about the spamming. I don't really know what to do about that, but I'll look into it. <laughs> um, all right. If uh, this is a good time to remind everyone, if you do make a a super chat donation, I will be able to uh, give priority to those questions and I'll certainly answer it. And that is much appreciated, of course. Uh, what's your prediction for Daniil Medvedev for Wimbledon? Will he be seeded too, considering Wimbledon seeds differently? So PSA, Wimbledon is not seeding differently this year. They have gotten away from that. It is now just going to be based on the rankings. I I don't know what prompted them to make that change because... I didn't really mind how they did it. I thought that was kind of fine. That was pretty cool. I, I didn't mind that at all. Uh, I know Nadal fans didn't love that. It didn't really help Nadal. I, I get the frustration, but I think with, with the absence of the grass court season, you know, it is true that, you know, good grass court players didn't really have a chance to work, to use their grass court prowess to improve their ranking. So... You know, I understand why Wimbledon did that. I don't know why they didn't do it for the women. That was also, that was always very strange how they only did it for one. But yeah, they, they are obviously, um, they, they're going to the regular system now. So Medvedev will be seated uh, too. Big hello from Serbia. Thank you. I, I do like it when you guys tell me where you're watching from. It's always great. Love the Serbian fans. Love them. They, there seems to be a lot of them out there, guys. Happy about that. Why is Djokovic so successful at the Australian Open and not as much at US Open. It's mostly because of the bounce and the the low bounce in Australia versus the gritty higher bounce at in New York. I think that's the biggest deal. When Djokovic serves, it's often a slice serve, um, especially on the second serve as of late. And when that stays low and skids through the surface, that's when that's uh, effective. Uh, it's not so much effective if it bounces high. It kind of diminishes that that serve because if it doesn't bounce high, or excuse me, if it doesn't stay low, uh, it goes into the righty forehand, and if you miss your spot, it's a really bad serve. So that's one of the main reasons. And then the backhand. Novak hits his backhand pretty flat, right? Gets a lot of depth on it, but if it pierces through the court, if it skids through the court... Um, that is where it's going to be a better offensive weapon. The forehand kind of transcends surfaces. I don't think it's much about the forehand, but the backhand is more effective on a faster, lower bouncing surface. Uh, also, the way he returns 
it's going to separate himself in Australia and on the faster surfaces, I think. Um, I think that, I think on the faster surfaces, Novak is, is slaying the big servers where other players are not. Where um, on the slower surfaces, I think it, it just, it doesn't make that skill that Novak has quite as unique. So a couple of different uh, things maybe working there, but obviously uh, Australia is the home. Um, all right. I don't know how to pronounce this name. Chow? Kind of seems like Chow. Uh, do you think Titi Pass reminds you a little of Gustavo Querton? Or am I crazy? I don't know, a little bit before my time. I know you have the one-handed backhand. I know you have, uh, you know, Guga, Flair, you know, offense, beautiful game, I'd say. Um, I wish I could answer that question a little bit better because I didn't really cover Quirton's career at all. Um, but I, I see, you know, I definitely see in terms, you know, I think he was pretty willing to, to go to the net behind his shots, um, somewhat all court game, but yeah, I mean, can't, can't give you a great analysis on that. Unfortunately. Is Nadal, is U.S. Open going to be as fast as last year? I'm not sure. Not sure. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people are saying that Novak isn't good at the U.S. Open because of the drunk fans. Come on. Come on. I'm from New York. No, I'm just joking. Um, is Nadal in the phase of his career that Federer has been, where slams are kind of few and far between, but he consistently contends? That's going to be hard to uh, to determine right now, but I think if you're if you're contending, you can't really complain too much. I think um, now, obviously, if you're Nadal, it just hurts a lot to not win the French. That's how it feels because there are a lot of contenders on hard courts now, and grass. It doesn't feel like like there are that many contenders. It feels like a lot of the younger players are still getting their footing. But it feels like it's Djokovic's best surface. It feels like, uh, obviously, Novak has won more in Australia. But still, I think that he has a lot of unique advantages on grass. So in that respect, it's it's a big blow for Nadal to, to, to not win Roland Garros. And that's why it might feel like, okay, where is Rafa in his career right now? And where's the next slam coming? But I think all in all, he's right there. Uh, he's not that far off. If uh, I don't put much weight into Australia. I just don't think he came into the Australian Open this year ready to play. Uh, with the injury that he was nursing in the lead-up, I just don't think he had the requisite training. Don't think he came into the tournament with enough fitness. He was never going to win there. He was never going to really contend there. And I wouldn't put too much put put too much stock in it. And then at the French, what happened here? Well, he looked, you know, he didn't have an easy lead-up, but he comes in, looks good, runs into Novak Djokovic, who has one of the great performances of all time against Nadal and wins the match in four. Uh, I don't think that it's any time to panic if you're if you're Rafa Nadal or one of his fans when it comes to where his career is at. You know, for for how old he is and the tennis he's playing, I think he's in he's within striking distance, and uh, I I think that he needs to serve a little bit better. If we're if we're speaking in general terms, but other than that, I think everything pretty much checks out in terms of where Nadal's at right now. 
Who do you think is the biggest threat to Novak at Wimby? I kind of have this weird suspicion that if Medvedev is really peaking, Medvedev gets comfortable and he's firing, I think it could be him. I got to see, you know, he's, he needs to get comfort. There's that comfort factor. There is, uh, it's hard to account for that. Who is going to feel at home on the grass? Who is going to feel like they're moving well um, and that they have their feet under them? That's, that's difficult to say. It really is. But when it comes to Medvedev, the depth that he hits with, the the flat backhand that he has, how he redirects, the fact that he gets a ton of returns in play, he keeps the ball low, he has the big serve, which can be so effective on grass. I love everything about his game on the surface. He just needs to feel it out and get comfortable there and, and grow confidence. I know he, he lost to Jan Leonard Struff. Struff's so dangerous. Uh, I watched the first set of that match, and um, I didn't have too many major takeaways. I didn't. So I'm not really uh, writing Medvedev off just because he lost um, in that situation. Um, and I, I think that he has the game for grass. So I think that could be Novak's biggest threat. I've seen some people bring up his footwork. Let's address that. You know, I don't really know. I don't. I don't really get what people are talking about. He he's awkward. He his uh, he's an awkward player. His footwork is awkward as well. But that's just how he plays on all surfaces. So is his footwork going to stop him from from winning? I, I don't know. I mean, he just uh, he just positions himself strangely. He just has weird footwork. It's just how he plays. I don't think that that's a bigger problem on grass than it is on on other surfaces. I don't. Uh, Berrettini as a serious threat. What do you think? Look, with Berrettini and Novak, it's, um, skip you. Um, with Berrettini and Novak, um, it's again, like, it just feels like, it just feels like Berrettini is the kind of player that Novak has owned throughout his career. You're, uh, you know, uh, Milos Raonic, uh, even like uh yeah i don't want to rattle through through, through the the playstyles but when novak gets a return back into play that eliminates berrettini's ability to play plus 1 tennis it's just matteo can't hang with with novak in uh from neutral positions and the big thing that berrettini needs to change is this if if he if i even want to flinch at the idea that maybe matteo could trouble novak on grass Berrettini's got to get more offensive with his returning. He just does. Because how's he going to break Novak if he's not doing anything with his returns? So, you know, in, in that respect, it's just he's inviting neutral rallies in all of his return games. And Novak isn't really going to lose those. He's going to continuously find the backhand, break down Berrettini's movement. And I just don't think Mateo is good enough right now to to be a major threat for Novak on any surface. Um, Michael, I, I, I saw I, I missed your super chat. That must have been while I was going through the, uh, the comments that were uh, given to me before, so I just didn't have this page even up. So ask it again, and I got you, and I appreciate the, uh, the donation. So just ask it again. All right, what do we got? Uh, from Matteo. Is Berrettini in the chat? After I just said he couldn't beat Novak. Hopefully not. 
Has the chance that Nadal or Fed winning slams decreased to a point where it would be a big surprise if they win? I wouldn't be that surprised. Would not be that, that surprised if, uh, if Nadal wins another. Definitely not. Yeah, Michael, ask the question again, um, and then I might take a couple more, and then we will wrap up. It's been great, guys. Karatsev on grass from Jason. He was he looked so uncomfortable. So Karatsev is a guy. Again, it's it's that it's that movement factor, that X factor, because I think that Aslan has so much going for him where uh he should um he should really he should be very good on grass. He takes the ball early. He's even off both sides. You got to hit a lot of backhands on grass. So I like strong backhands. His strokes are compact. He's a good returner. He's got a big serve. He likes to play aggressive and dictate, hit sharp angles, um, hit to hit to good targets. And I think all of those things should definitely be positives for Karatsev. But yeah, he did get injured in the in the second set and couldn't compete much. Lost the first set though before before he was injured and just didn't look comfortable moving. If he can be comfortable moving, then I like him on the surface, but that might take some time. Do you think we should have a masters on grass? Timely question. I like it. I, I want one. I think there should be one. I think the only possibility is if you, uh, if you change Hamburg to grass and that becomes a grass court masters like it used to be, because look, I've been to Queens club. I've been there. You can't play a Masters there. You just can't. First of all, I think that Masters from now on should be combined events. There should be men and women. So um, it's too tiny to accommodate that for sure. Now, maybe it could be a, a men. Maybe it could be men's only. Maybe. Um, I think it still might be too small. The second court is puny. A Masters court. Uh, a master's event should have two, three big courts. It, Queens only has one big court. It's uh, it's very, very small. It just doesn't have the facilities to to host a master's. And, um, you know, it doesn't look like, I don't know. I, I was watching Hala today. Uh, it doesn't seem like a master's to me. It just doesn't. The The shadows, the um, the shadows were, were kind of a joke, you know? It's not, I, I don't want to say that's ridiculous by me saying like, you can't be a masters because there's shadows on your court, but it just doesn't have that look. It doesn't, it, it's not, doesn't look up to par there. So I think it would have to be the only event that is big enough to host a masters would be Hamburg, which is currently a clay. They would need to switch to grass. I would want that. I really would. I like the variation. Um, Gil, do you get to attend press conferences yet? No, I, I haven't. I haven't done that yet. I think, uh, I think I probably will, um, be covering some events at some point. Uh, what would you like to change in the kinds of questions players are asked there? Well, I think one of the things that this YouTube channel has shown me is that people are interested in, in things that might be a little in the weeds and might be tactical and a little bit more for the diehard tennis fan. And a lot of a lot of that is not discussed in press conferences. The question is, you know, how much are how much are players willing to give up? 
how much are players willing to give away about their strategy and and their tactics and how they're feeling on their game. But definitely that that would be something that I think is lacking in press conferences. No ja- no doubt. Zverev on grass. Yeah, I talked about it. He just needs to be more aggressive. And I don't think he likes how low the ball bounces either. So I, I don't I don't see grass as Zverev's best surface. But if he's going to serve great, he's going to go far. That's just how it works on, on the surface. If if you serve great and you have Alexander Zverev serve, you're going to go pretty far, period. Federer at Wimbledon. Obviously, um, look, obviously it's not looking like Federer can go best of five sets for two weeks right now. That's kind of what it looks like at the moment. But he also still displayed a lot of skill in his Roland Garros matches. It's just a fitness problem. I don't think that it looks like, look, that time is not his friend right now. And it's just not happening as fast as it needs to for him. Um, so... Right now, I would say I come into the tournament and there's probably about, and I know people will differ on this, there's probably about seven. Uh, I'm going to give a big range here. And again, Wimbledon power rankings, they will happen. I will do them. Don't worry. Uh, they're probably about anywhere between five and nine, uh, between five to ten players who I think would have a better shot at winning Wimbledon than Federer. Like the, the, look, he's still incredibly talented. So let's not just completely write him off, which I did on clay. I completely wrote him off. And that's because I knew that just physically it was just not going to happen. It was a non-starter. It was never going to happen. And then he he proved me right on that. That's for sure. Didn't even, uh, you know, really had no intention to go deep there. But uh, he'll push himself on grass. That's for sure. He'll push himself. How do I rate team's chances? Well, right now, I mean... It's tough. Hopefully he figures himself out mentally, but then technically he's going to need to return a lot better. He's going to need to uh, shore up the weakness of his game. The U.S. Open and the French Open, the the slower conditions, it really helps his return of serve, and that's a, that's a big benefit for team because after that, really, he's become a pretty good all-around player. Uh, he doesn't handle fatigue great. He's a, a little bit inconsistent. Uh more than a little bit. He's pretty inconsistent sometimes, but you know, teams obviously got a lot in his favor. If he can find the the fitness, the motivation, the explosiveness needs to be back. He needs to have that that consistent explosive power and explosive movement and focus. But the biggest problem on gra- on grass technically is the return of serve. Like I think if he played Novak Djokovic on grass, let's say in twenty let's say in twenty twenty, okay? If team played Djokovic on grass in 2020, I think Novak would win 75% of his first serve points or higher. 75, 80%, and I feel pretty comfortable saying that. And in order to beat Novak, let's just say, you got to have at least some sets. You need to at least have a couple sets where you you knock him under 75%. And I don't think team could do that. I just don't think his return would be good enough. All right, Michael Walker. The end of my question, was Federer wasn't in his prime in 2015 playing Novak at 34, yet Novak's still in his prime at 34 for CY. That's not fair. I don't think Novak's still in his prime. I don't. I don't. I'm now, look, some people are going to um some people are going to age 
you know, in different ways. But no, I don't think Novak's in his prime right now. So I think he is in his kind of the second phase of his career where uh, he is just not quite as as physical when it comes to um, endurance that, that he used to be, right? He's not someone um, who's, he's not going to rely on his physicality as much as he did when he was young. He's still very quick around the court. He still covers the court really, really well. So in that sense, he hasn't aged much. He's still agile and flexible and pretty explosive. But endurance-wise, he's just not as physical as he was, but he's adding other things to his game. In terms of, of Federer being in his prime, um, you know, he, I would say the same thing was true, where he was not as quick anymore. He was less consistent. His forehand, he had to go for it a little bit more. Otherwise, he'd miss fire, and he just wasn't quite as good as as he was when he was uh, in his 20s physically. The movement, it wasn't quite as good. It was still very good. These guys are still too good, but I don't think they're they're uh, I don't think they're in their prime. I think all of these guys are post prime. And as uh, Sumna Lenin is saying, Novak's prime was 2011 through 2016. I'd have to agree. I'd have to agree. So, twenty eleven Novak w- would roast current Novak. I agree. I am in that train of thought. That's what I feel. I agree. SJ says Nadal's prime 20, 2008 through 2014, Djokovic 2011 through 2016, Federer 2004 to 2009. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. All right. Um, I, think, I think I'm ready to wrap things up here. Um, this, this, this has been a lot of fun, guys. Really appreciate this. Again, these are going to be live. Uh, Steve Flink um, interview is going to come. I'm going to hit some music. Hit some music for the outro. Why don't we? Steve Flink uh, interview is coming up um, on Friday. Make sure that you're subscribed to the channel. Uh, This will uh, go up on my podcast as well. So if you missed this and you want to go back, listen to the beginning, uh, you can can on your favorite podcast platform, rate and review on Apple. Love that as always. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.